FX medicine is evolving. The same evidence-based research, ideas and thought-provoking conversations that you love in refreshed new formats. To help co-create it with us and for member rewards, sign up at fxmedicine.com.au. For now, enjoy this podcast previously recorded with Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us today is Maria Schafflender. She's a clinical nutritionist with a special interest in mental health, children's developmental health, gut health and genetics, which stem from her own health challenges throughout her childhood and adult life. Maria especially is a Mind Foundation practitioner and an accredited genetics SNP test practitioner. Welcome to FX Medicine, Maria. How are you going? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. A pleasure once again, because we've had you on before speaking about great stuff. So for our listeners, our watchers out there, please go and look up our previous podcast with Maria Schafflinger. Uh, now, I guess to start, today we're talking about Gilbert syndrome or Gilbert's syndrome. So what is it exactly, Maria? So Gilbert syndrome, as I tend to call it, um, is a genetic condition. So it's a polymorphism in the UGT1A1 enzyme, uh, which is a bit of a mouthful, but essentially it's a SNP. So uh, a variation, like a lot of variations that people probably heard about, you know, things like MTHFR um, and other genes where essentially that enzyme becomes under-functioning. So it, depending on how many variations people have, between 30 to 50% of the enzyme capacity, um, you know, becomes dysfunctional. And it is something that people are born with. Um, essentially, what happens is the bilirubin in the um, patients, in the person who has Gilbert syndrome, is usually elevated. And it's usually elevated pretty consistently on several blood tests, so not just one. Um, and what happens also is it becomes pretty tricky to detoxify. So bilirubin and glucuronidation, which is the phase of the liver where the enzyme is functional, is very important for our detoxification. So things like drugs like paracetamol or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, but also estrogens and pesticides and a whole bunch of other toxins that we regularly eliminate. So it's a pretty important enzyme. Yeah, okay. So, you know, we're talking about slightly elevated bilirubin, but it's not to the point of what, you know, we'd normally see the hepatitis, the, the total full jaundice picture. However, people can get a yellowing of the eyes and a yellowing of the skin. So it's not, um, it's not invisible. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it really varies. So, you know, in my patient population, there's a whole spectrum. So some people have elevations of between 18 to 20 on their bloods and some people have 45 and 50 on their bloods. And, you know, I find whether they're actually having 
those jaundice obvious you know symptoms the yellowing uh, it really varies on their lifestyle and um you know the the liver function in general so usually those who have you know an alcohol habit or a drug habit or take a lot of painkillers they will usually have a worse presentation and those signs will be really obvious but most of the time they're not really that obvious can it be triggered by other things though as well uh, elevated bilirubin, yeah. yeah so the, the, the expression, if you like, of it, the 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 evidence. The evidence, yeah, yeah. So look, liver dysfunction, hepatitis, cirrhosis, you know, all those things need to be ruled out usually before, um, and they usually are medically ruled out before you know someone's put into the Gilbert's basket. Um, but what I find is people have bloods with you know elevated bilirubin for years and years and years, and have just always been told, "Don't worry about it; it's benign." nothing to do, all good, carry on. And um, whilst they're having a whole bunch of, you know, psychiatric and gut symptoms. So uh, it can be really frustrating. I find most people are pretty frustrated. Yeah. Right. So this is what gets me, you know, you, you read every single medical textbook and it's a slightly elevated, um, unconjugated bilirubin and um, it's nothing to worry about, it's benign, reassurance is the only treatment given, there's nothing else to do, walk out. Is this, do you think, because medicine has nothing to offer? Yeah, I think also it's they have nothing to offer because it's not a pathology as such, so it's not a liver pathology, but it's also because I think there's a bit of a laziness around actually digging into the research and digging into the understanding of it. And I think now that we have access to more genetic testing, like we've had in the last few years, yeah. these things are becoming more obvious. You know, you can actually just order a really simple, inexpensive genetic test online and check whether you have yeah. the UGT 101 variation or one or more of them. Um, and then you know for sure. But yeah, I think it's just, it's just not recognized as something that is treatable. Gotcha. I, I want to circle back to the symptoms again, or forgive me, the triggers again. And it's not just like, um, you know, wholesale use of heavy drugs or illicit drugs or anything like that. I mean, even things like, you know, dehydration or um, viral infections that might be affecting your liver, like um, Epstein-Barr virus, things like that. Is that correct? Mm. Yeah. So, so can you go into that a bit? Does it tend to present or does it tend to be picked up in certain age groups? Yes. Yeah, definitely. So what I'm seeing a lot of is teenagers, um, teenagers coming in, particularly girls um, with Gilbert syndrome where it's been triggered by puberty. So a huge hormonal influx goes through the liver. You know, they have the genetic um, glitch and then it has this perfect storm. So too much estrogen to detoxify, the liver doesn't cope and the bilirubin starts going up. So that's the most common thing I find. And another one is probably more... Uh, driven by someone who's been on antidepressants or anxiolytic drugs, which um, triggers the bilirubin um, to come up. So that, that's another category of people. But yeah, most of the time I find it's more females and uh, presents with teenage, you know, puberty essentially. Okay, so like, I know this isn't going to be everybody, but I'm wondering if this might answer part of that picture that we see that females tend to be affected more by EBV during that pubertal mm. area, the, the, the menarche. Um, do you find this in clinical practice? Do you find that, that uh, if 
I got to I got to be careful about biasing my my picture here. Do you find that of the women girls that come to see you uh, with who have been diagnosed with EBV and they're really struggling with like HSC and hormones and things? Mm -hmm. Do you find a large percentage of those people that come to see you have Gilbert? Um, it's tricky to say, you know, because it is a bit of a special interest area for me, I do just tend to see a larger percentage. Right. So you gravitate, you get them. <laughs> so I, I think, I, you know, I just see a lot of people with that, um, with that and pyroluria, you know, which we can touch on later. But um, I find generally, you know, what would be the correlation there is these people tend to be zinc deficient and they tend to have suboptimal detox. So if they're going to be stressed, going through puberty, picking up viral infections in that sort of teenage time, they're on the back foot already with their handling of minerals and their handling of toxins. So they're, yeah, definitely going to be more likely to catch something like chronic Epstein-Barr, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so my understanding is Gilbert syndrome. I'm going to say Gilbert syndrome because it's too hard. I feel like... Gilbert, like I'm a poser. I know, yeah. French. But, but yeah. um, so, um, so with Gilbert's syndrome, um, I thought that one of the hallmarks was that there was no hemolysis. But you just mentioned pyroluria. That's mm. to do with hemolysis, isn't it? With heme. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, in every human, we have heme breaking down into bilirubin and pyrols and then getting, you know, re-metabolized and reused up in the liver. And what I'm finding, and this is anecdotal, I don't think there's been any studies done, but I can probably take a sample of at least 50 or 60 patients who have Gilbert syndrome and all the signs of pyroluria, and then I'll test them for pyroluria, and they usually come up positive. Right. So my, my theory is that there's probably been some epigenetic damage done to the liver, um, in the previous generations of these people. So I always, you know, taking a full case history, there's usually somewhere up the, the family tree, there's usually an alcoholic somewhere, um, usually on the male line, you know, so they're going to be that grandfather who drank too much because he was depressed after the war or, you know, th there's usually some sort of massive toxicity exposure. So someone was a farmer. So, you know, oh. oxidative damage to the liver, which then translates through the generations and triggers um, these things. So that's what I'm finding, yeah, just clinically. I tell you what, so there's a research project for somebody listening. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to do that. One day I'll, be, yeah, I'll become a one researcher day. one day and that will be the first thing I'll do, yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting, yeah. though, about pyrolurea or, you know, what was colloquially called Mo factor, and forgive me, I've just forgotten the, I've gone blank on the actual... Cryptopyrol, cryptopyrol is the other one, yeah. No, there was another one, uh, the actual chemical name. Anyway. Oh, um, HPL. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> so it's to me, it's kind of like the difference between uh, the colloquial term like leaky gut mm -hmm. and the medical term of bacterial translocation or intestinal hyperpermeability. They're both true, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. that one doesn't exist when you're talking to a doctor. And this one does. They're, they're both mm. the same thing. It's just that 
you know, if a doctor says the word tummy to his patient, is he using the wrong word? No. Right. So th this is what I don't get, this disconnect. I also have a question about, do you think maybe the reason it's totally glossed over is because it's already been judged to be benign, therefore it can't exist, it can't be an issue, so we'll look elsewhere if there might be an issue with you, Mr. Mrs. Patient. Yeah. So, for instance, you mentioned drugs. Um, now, I picked up, looking at this, I picked up, you know, paracetamol toxicity. Surely there's got to be others that have got to do with glucuronidation, correct? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it impairs the handling of all those common drugs. So um, paracetamol, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, recreational drugs, all those sort of things. So um, aspirin has been cited as well. So the, um, I guess the half-life of those drugs in that person's body is going to be much, much longer than an average. So the amount, you know, those maximum doses that are on paracetamol packets, they're not going to apply to a Gilbert's person. So they should be a lot more careful and possibly limiting to half the maximum dose um, if they need to take those drugs. Um, but I think, you know, just to answer your previous point about, um, you know, treatment, medical recognition and treatment, I think um, medical treatment comes into it when someone has gallstones, you know, when they need to get their gallbladder out. That's usually when that treatment comes in. So, and I think even most of that time, no one goes back to look at whether they've got Gilbert syndrome. They just, they take the gallbladder out and um, that's supposed to resolve the problem. And there's been no previous correlative studies on Gilbert? Um, not that I've seen, not that I've seen. It would be the most obvious thing. Um, and, you know, the patients will come in and say, oh, I wonder if this is related, but the medical professional never mentioned yeah. anything. So, so it, yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems to me there is evidence, albeit case reports at least, um, mm -hmm. that that there is increased risk certainly of like paracetamol which for our um, united states viewers is acetaminophen uh um so there there is a real risk we, we know this now it it seems that it's been glossed over because it's been already determined you know it's just like being left or right-handed or blue or blue or brown eyed so it can't be the issue but now we know there's at least some issue at least with some patients perhaps we should look further you you were also talking about estrogens earlier. That's very interesting. So what about risk of, you know, endometriosis or of fibrocystic breast disease? What what about uh, risks of these other um, disorders from? I'm not going to say remedial, um, but but certainly a whole range of severities. Yeah, yeah. So um, the glucuronidation pathway in the liver, which is, you know, where the, the glitch comes in with Gilberts, is responsible for handling estrogen detox. So it's not the only pathway. You know, we also have methylation and, you know, other pathways that handle excess hormones. Um, but glucuronidation is definitely one of the main ones. So whenever that pathway is not functioning to its optimal, you're going to have estrogen dominance conditions. So everything ranging from, you know, your fibroids to heavy menses all the way through to endometriosis, as you've said. And it's kind of the way that I explain it to patients is usually how big is your bucket? So what else is in your liver bucket that is stopping your estrogen from getting detoxified efficiently? 
and usually, you know, there's histamine issues and there's, um, you know, alcohol and there's caffeine and there's, you know, a whole bunch of things that we have in our daily buckets. <laughs> Speaking of caffeine. And, um, you know, those things need to be detoxified. So if your glucuronidation is already struggling, plus, you know, if you're taking an oral contraceptive or, a, a, you know, another... Um, form of contraception, you know, that's usually when um, people with women with Gilbert syndrome will come in and have a problem. It's usually when they've started taking oral contraceptive and they're not handling it well. So they're having extreme reactions. They are having mood reactions or they're having, um, you know, disturbed periods, things that they're not expecting. Um, on a contraceptive. So obviously their handling of that drug has been impaired because their glucuronidation has been impaired. There's so, another yeah, it's a really common one. There's another research topic, um, the comparison between Gilberts and non-Gilberts with the handling or the adverse of, um, reactions from uh, whatever OCT. I mean, yeah, that would be really interesting to look at. Um, you also mentioned farmers before and you were mentioning the bucket. Now, farmers particularly have a very high is that coffee <laughs> this is a dandy chai that's supporting my gallbladder and liver right now <laughs> um, yeah. um sorry the reason i'm laughing is because of a youtube video about subtitles i can't get into that but anyway um um but with farmers we we know that their their exposure to pesticides is is far higher than a lot of other populations but you know and i'm not going to say particularly males because there's a lot of women farmers out there that really do you know they do the hard yakka so um so have you ever looked at this sort of thing and found evidence of high pesticide residues or um you know chemical well residues is the word i guess in this population yeah, look, what I usually test for is, and that was our previous podcast topic, is um, hair mineral analysis. Mm. So I do that pretty much with every patient. And what I find is, um, so I've had a number of female farmers who are clients um, in rural New South Wales and Victoria, and um, they both have had a cancer um, scare and, you know, a predisposition to skin cancers and breast cancers. And um, what I found with them, so they would have Gilbert syndrome and that pathway was completely overwhelmed by the toxicity. So it was both heavy metal toxicity and what we assumed was pesticide and chemical exposure. So I don't usually conduct testing for those chemicals just because the cost of the testing is usually prohibitive. But I think it's pretty much assumed that when someone's in that occupation and they've got a stack of heavy metals like cadmium and mercury on their hair analysis, they also would have accumulated a whole pile of xenoestrogen, pesticide, toxins, you know, all of those things. So, yeah, they really do struggle. And it's, you know, the liver can only handle so much for so long and that's usually where the problems come in. Okay, so I, I can get that we're going to zigzag a bit, but but I need to ask the question now then, and that is that, does treating these people help them? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it, treating the, helping the liver and helping the gut to detoxify is extremely helpful. And that's been my own personal experience. You know, I have Gilbert syndrome. I have pyroluria. This is why I'm really into these areas. 
um, and I've had a lot of heavy metal toxicity as well. And, you know, my um, thinking is that, you know, I didn't get blood tests as I was a child because I grew up in Russia and that's not really a place where they do preventative health care or they probably do now, but they definitely didn't do that in the 70s. Hmm. Um, so, you know, based on my childhood symptoms, you know, every time I would have dairy, I would just, you know, it would come straight back up, you know, any sort of saturated fat, anything like that. I had a lot of issues digesting. So I think I had Gilbert's expressing very early on in life. I was born with jaundice, you know, both my children are born with jaundice. So, um, yeah, I think these things are present. And once you start resolving them, so, you know, addressing the gut health, addressing the liver health, replenishing the nutrients that you're missing because of the permeability that invariably comes with bilirubin elevation, um, addressing all those things is really, really fundamental and supporting it with nutrients that support glucuronidation. You know what? I actually wonder if you mentioned John born with jaundice and I wonder because it's, it's not uncommon for babies to have mm. a little bit of icterus. And so they put them in the UV crib for a little while and everything's fine. See you later. Bye. Yeah. And I just wonder if there was any follow-up of this supposedly transient uh, welcome into life. I mm. wonder if there was any follow-up whether more Gilbert syndrome would be picked up and then it would be seen as a condition. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a huge correlation, definitely. You know, that's another research study for someone. Um, you know, not every baby who is born with jaundice will have Gilbert syndrome. You no. know, definitely that's, no. that's not the case. But I think there's definitely going to be a huge percentage um, and how it impacts you know um, children I think especially now we have again with hair analysis I see a lot of heavy metals on children mm. um, pesticides glyphosate you know all of those things that are in the environment um, those kids are definitely going to have a harder time detoxifying and what you can see is um, elevated beta glucuronidase uh, on a gut test I have seen that quite a few times with kids when I do gut testing yep. they will have elevated beta glucuronidase um, and they will have Gilbert syndrome. It's pretty much 100% correlation in the people okay, that I've seen. That's interesting. So, so here we go. You know, look, we've got two tests there, cryptopyrrole or pyrolurea, HPL, um, and you've got functional liver detox, both of which are lambasted by orthodox medicine and yet which gives the uh, integrative practitioner key clues as to what might help a patient, particularly when you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm thinking as a nurse, I'm thinking about medication toxicity. Hmm. I mean, um, but I guess we have to answer the question, if things like stress and dehydration and infections trigger a, uh, you know, the icterus that's seen, the yellowing of the eyes, that sort of thing, um, and you get rehydrated, have some rest, get over the infection, and it goes away, does that really mean that it is benign because you've still got these potential drug toxicities? Yeah, well, it Over never you. really goes away. Yeah, no, look, I find that it doesn't really go away. So unless you actually treat the issue, so treat the elevated bilirubin, it doesn't necessarily go away by itself on a blood test. So but I found, you know... Right. I mean, medically, it's supposed to be, what is it, less than... 
I can't remember Less the fifteen is fifteen, the, something like that. And and that can be chronic, but it's not deemed pathological. It's deemed yeah, the, you know, um, brown or blue eyes sort of thing. Um, yeah. Um, but when you get things that can trigger a worsening of symptoms, like for instance, fatigue, mm. well, that's actually expressing itself now, isn't it? And you know, yeah. now you know, drug toxicity. So that's now expressing itself into a medical condition. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think also, you know, other factors like fasting, for example, you know, fasting is a really obvious um, bilirubin elevator. Right. So, you know, that's something to be aware of as well because usually we want people to do fasted bloods. Um, so, you know, as long as it's consistent, I guess it doesn't matter. But, yeah, the bilirubin will be higher on fasted bloods um then not and especially right. you know if someone's exercised um before they've taken a blood test so they've fasted and they've exercised which is not uncommon that's going to create a whole bunch of discrepancies on their bloods but i think you know just viewing it as jaundice you know that, that's just only one very small indicator of the underlying issue that's when things become really obvious and people start noticing because someone's telling them you know their eyes look yellow mm. um you know, we can usually intervene 10 steps before that and really um address this stuff gotcha okay so let's talk about treatment what do you use apart from that tea that you've got there <laughs> yeah so look i mean lots of liver and gallbladder support so i'm not a naturopath so i don't tend to use herbs um, but nutritionally, what I absolutely love is the nutrients that support that glucuronidation pathway in the liver. So calcium deglucrate is the absolute number one star for Gilbert syndrome. And I find that most people do have to be on it ongoing. So, you know, personally, when I slack off and don't take it for a few weeks, sure enough, I'll do my bloods and the bilirubin will be up in the 20s again. And I'll go back on my calcium deglucarase and it's going to go all the way back down to 12 or 14. So um, it is extremely, extremely helpful. Um, magnesium is a big hero as well. So one of the nutrients that supports glucuronidation is magnesium. Um, fish you, oils. Sorry, can I interject? Do you, do you tend to prefer a, um, a certain ligand there? Uh, I'm, magnesium I'm wondering type. about bile flow here. Oh, bile flow. Um, yeah, usually things that would support bile, so that would be taurine. Taurine is a really important one for bile flow. Right. Um, again, nutritionally speaking, you know, I'm sure the herbalists will have a whole range of things that can support that as well, you know, globe artichoke and all those um, fantastic herbs. But, yeah, just from a nutritional perspective, taurine is a So over, overseas, one. I know in the States they have magnesium taurate. In Australia, yes. we don't have that. It's not a an approved listable ingredient, permissible ingredient, forgive me, by the TGA. Yes. So do you tend to use another ligand of magnesium plus taurine? Right, yes. So I usually will use magnesium citrate um, right. just because, you know, it's easily absorbed, well-tolerated, yep. um, all of those things, citrate or bisglycinate, and then usually a separate taurine, yeah, just because the amount you need is pretty high. You know, oh. I do tend to use pretty high amounts of taurine in between meals. Um, so, yeah, it does help to have a separate one. Um, and then, yeah, the other one is fish oils. So um, EPA is a really great antioxidant for the glucuronidation pathway. And the other one is um, your bifido probiotics. 
Ah, of course. So, yes. Yeah, and I mean, I guess depending on the microbiome testing, you know, what comes up for the person, but yeah, bifido is a really um, great enhancer. Now, that would also have an impact on short-chain fatty acids because they're affected by Gilbert syndrome, aren't they? Is that right? Yeah. Well, so the whole microbiome is affected. And um, actually, you know, this a lot of this learning, I have to credit Rachel Arthur, who has done some fantastic research into this area and yeah. is, you know, has been a great advocate of bringing Gilbert's into the limelight, you know, drawing more attention to it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, she has very um, correctly pointed out that Clostridia is a type of bacteria that feeds on bilirubin and what I find is a hundred percent of the time I'll do a gut test and the Gilbert's person will have an overgrowth of clostridia in the gut and that's um, you know based on Rachel's research I think it's seen as actually um, it's a an adjustment you know like a protective mechanism to chew up some of that bilirubin um, in the gut oh I mean there's a can of worms there <laughs> How many questions yeah. have you got? <laughs> How much time? <laughs> um, so close yeah, it's to a big topic, that Well, do you find that there is, I can't say a tie-in, but let's say a worsening of symptomatology in those children that might have neurobehavioural um, disorders if they also have Gilbert's syndrome? Do they yeah. have a worse time of it because they've got high clostridials? They, they would definitely, yeah. And again, look, there, there just hasn't been enough research, but we do know anecdotally and lots of practitioners, you know, within the Mind Forum have spoken about this, that um, a lot of um, kids on the spectrum have pyroluria. Right. So that's pretty well established, I think, yeah, and a lot of clinicians will find that. So my guess would be a lot of them have pyroluria. It's hard to get kids tested for blood, so... You know, we don't know how many of those also have Gilbert syndrome and elevated bilirubin, but my guess would be a, a big percentage would have it. And if we were to do routine blood tests on these children, which is really tricky, um, it would be more of this. But yes, absolutely. Yeah. So clostridia is a really big issue in yeah. um, the spectrum disorders. Yeah. And, and one of the other questions floating around my mind is the this quandary, this sort of catch 22. You've got issues with oestrogen detoxification. We know that exercise helps to uh, favour the two series oestrogen hydroxyoestrogens, which are beneficial, and it decreases the 16s, helps to get rid of um, uh, other oestrogens in total, um, uh, also helps with enterohepatic recirculation and um, our microbiota milieu of diversity we know that but then you've got fatigue as one of the symptoms of gilbert so what's mm. these sort of this sort of patient population's exercise tolerance and how right. would you go about that do you tend to favor different types of exercises maybe like more strength yeah rather than i think definitely yeah i think there's definitely a fine line between um you know um managing fatigue and getting all those um, benefits from the exercise so i you know i never tell people to stop exercising unless they're in such chronic fatigue that they can't get out of bed yeah. i think it's more about not over exercising and yeah. not over exercising on an empty stomach which is particularly destructive and i do and tend to steer people away and dehydration exactly yeah and I tend to steer people away from the chronic cardio, you know, just that really high cardiovascular demanding, you know, 
even you know all those new trendy workouts like CrossFit, um, mm. you know, I find someone like with Gilbert syndrome, it's just too demanding. You know, it just it triggers the breakdown of the red blood cells and it just cascades the whole thing. So there's lots of other ways to do it. You know, you can do your walking or fast walking. You can do weights. Weights are fantastic um, for a whole bunch of reasons, but you know that none of those things are going to trigger these excessive um gilbert's symptoms so yeah it's definitely it's very individual but i yeah. think overall the benefits are amazing from exercise it's just to not overdo it is the goal right there, there seems to be also a changing of the guard with regards to doing cardio first before strength some people are swapping that strength first and then cardio um yeah. do you do you use that sort of stuff or uh, look, I'm not, you know, because I'm not really expert in exercise, you know, I tend to um, send people on to the experts, you know, in the personal yep. trainers who are, right. you know, very um, nutritionally and naturopathically minded. Um, but, you know, the general guide I would give to people, I always prioritise weights because I just find the benefits of that, you know, for mental health, bone health, um, females, you know, I see my big um, group of patients is usually females, 35 to 55, and I just find getting them away from that cardio and that overexertion just onto some nice weight training and walking and yoga and things like that is usually what I try right. and do. Yeah, um, less impact. Yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a fan of doing the my push-ups. What I do is I turn the iPhone on its side and I film myself and I'm doing push-ups against the wall. It's really good. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it look good, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Now, diet, of course, this is going to be a hallmark. This is going to be the, the, the keystone of treatment. So what dietary recommendations do you use, do you, do you recommend? Yeah, so usually, you know, what I say to people, and this is probably going to go against, the, you know, the popular trend, um, the keto diet is probably the absolute worst diet for someone with Gilbert syndrome. Yep. So, you know, loading up on saturated fat is going to be really, really tricky just because, you know, the liver and the gallbladder capacity for that is not there. So most of the time I will get people off things like full-fat dairy and full-fat coconut products and, you know, really high fatty meats, so burger patties and all that sort of stuff. And I just find, you know, when they drop that saturated fat out of their diet and get the leaner versions um, of the proteins particularly, everything just functions so much better you know they they feel better they digest better their bowels move better so i find yeah that's a really really tricky area um for gilbert's people and definitely emphasizing foods that are um you know plants you know, vegetables that are great for moving the bile you know fiber lots of fiber for feeding the microbiome so that the leaky gut is less of an issue um, and, you know, definitely glutamine foods. So because leaky gut is such a problem with Gilbert syndrome, um, I love bone broths, you know, bone broths with yep. the fats skimmed off. So none, none of the fat in them. Um, so all glutamine based foods that can repair the lining um, and also high zinc foods, which I kind of emphasize for every single person because everyone's Pepitas, pepitas, pepitas. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and yeah, exactly, bitters. So, yeah, your rocket, your dandelion, uh, all the, the bitter greens to yeah, flush everything out, yeah. Um, uh, just a question about tolerability of high-fat foods, which is, you know, quite a lump of fat usually, um, versus fish oils and supplements that are of a, a fatty acid nature. 
Um, do you do you have any issues with tolerability there? Do you tend to use maybe the phospholipids of krill oil, or uh, you know, I understand one brand in Australia has a basically a pre-digested fish oil out there. Um, do you tend to favour different ways of getting these good fats into people? Yeah, no, look, I find that all um, monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats are usually not a problem for people. It's really just the saturated fats. So most of the time they won't struggle with nuts and seeds or olive oil or fish or, you know, any of those lighter fats. Okay. So I find, yeah, usually, um, you know, for EPAs being a really supportive nutrient for glucuronidation, yeah, I'll usually use uh, just a, a really high-quality practitioner brand fish oil. Um, I love hemp oil as well mm. and, you know, the nut oils. They just You want the, the spectrum of all those polyphenols to get all the antioxidant power. But, yeah, no, I, I really find any um, issues with that. It's usually just the saturated fat. Yeah, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you've covered this off, but just to make sure that we are saying it, more plant protein, a little bit less animal protein, would you favour that? Like the, the I would say nuts, more... The yeah, but also just more lean animal protein. So oh. not necessarily cutting it out, but, you know, like more the traditional paleo way that we used to eat, which is more the game meats, you know, the really lean game meats. So in Australia, kangaroos are really excellent protein source for us or just, you know, really lean lamb and beef that are organic grass-fed, you know, no pesticides, all yeah. of that. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I find usually protein is not, animal protein is not an issue. It's more just um, getting the really lean varieties. Now, you also do SNP testing, and we've sort of covered on, off that, but can you just go through what sort of SNPs you look for? Is it a conglomerate? Is it a group that you look for, or is there one hallmark that you that tends to stick out? Yeah, with Gilberts, it's the, you know, there's a, a few different um, SNPs under the UGT1A1. So it's usually UGT1A1 and there's a few variations of them. Mm-hmm. So when I order the testing, and unfortunately not all panels do that enzyme, so usually I will order a 23andMe panel from the US and just get that analysed. Yeah. So that will, yeah, that will usually have the UGT um, SNPs listed in a whole section. So, for example, you know, on my test, I had four homozygous UGT 101 SNPs right. in that category. And I'll usually see, with Gilbert's people, I'll usually see at least one or two homozygous, some mm. heterozygous. Um, but, yeah, there's usually a whole collection of red um, in, in those areas. Right. But, but do you, this is my pondering about the future, that we won't be concentrating on a SNP, but a group of SNPs. And they may seemingly be not, you know, related at first, but when you look at biochemistry, hey, we're a body. Um, do, you, do you ever find that there's tie-ins with, you know, let's say, um, you know, pimped SNPs with regards to choline or, choline. yeah, other things like, you know, uh, monoamine oxidase. Um, SNPs because yeah, of that. I find usually the COMT, yeah, COMT does come oh. up quite a lot with yeah. these people. Yeah, yeah, so there's a whole like estrogen handling, um, catecholamine handling issue yep. that comes into it. So, yeah, so quite often people with Gilberts who present with anxiety, for example, I'll usually find there's going to be a COMT um, homozygous in there somewhere. Gotcha. So, yeah, it's again that liver damage, you know, my theory is that intergenerational liver damage. Yeah. yeah. Now you've meant we've mentioned paracetamol, acetaminophen. 
Um, uh, forgive me. Block oh, I thought I'd done it. Um, <laughs> we've mentioned uh, several drugs. We've mentioned the oral contraceptive pill, paracetamol or acetaminophen from the US. Uh, we've, you've mentioned antidepressants as well. Uh, can you elucidate a little bit more on that and also cover off any other uh, drug groups that are of importance, please? Yeah, well, usually I find yeah, when someone is on one of those, um, you know, SSRI medications or anxiety drugs, or a lot of the time it becomes usually about recreational drug use as well. So it just depends, you know, every person is affected differently. But yeah, all those drugs have to go through a little pathway and glucuronidation does take a big hit um, in that detox. So yeah, the, the less of those things a person with Gilbert's can have, the, the better off they will be. And I do find, you know, alcohol, even though it doesn't go through that same pathway, I find that most Gilbert's people do far better with no alcohol or very limited alcohol intake. Um, because it's that bucket, you know, it just fills up the bucket. Um, and obviously cigarette smoke and all the other things will add as well. Yeah. Okay. Of course, we haven't covered illicit drugs or recreational drugs. What about them? Yeah, well, that's definitely going to have an impact um, on that pathway. So, you know, lots of people put that on their questionnaires when they come in and do my intake questionnaire. Um, and yeah, I think uh, any sort of adverse effects, particularly, you know, psychotic effects or episodes, anything like that, it's probably going to be in a person with a glitched um, liver pathway of some kind. So yeah, it's quite likely. Okay, so there's several things going through my mind here with the medications that we've discussed. Paracetamol, ibuprofen, or at certain NSAIDs, um, and you've mentioned illicit drugs, certainly fat-soluble drugs like THC. So what about people in chronic pain? How do they fare with Gil yeah. Gilberts and what are their options? Yeah, look, it's an interesting one. I don't tend to see a lot of those presentations and chronic pain is probably not my big area of mm. clinic focus. But, yeah, I think they'd have to definitely be careful with what they're taking and mm. how they're detoxing it and, you know, looking at their stool, looking at their digestion, um, watching out for any of those symptoms that might be signalling that, you know, they're not detoxifying. Um, and potentially starting with really low doses if they need to take right. that and increasing really slowly. Yeah, we're just watching you, for side effects. Have you ever found that if people are required because of a, another condition or their choice, let's say the OCP, um, that they wish to continue taking the OCP, have you mm. found that using natural treatments benefits them by taking away those adverse side effects that's, that's yeah bad. To, to an extent yeah to an extent you know my goal is to usually just educate and inform for other options um that are non-hormonal you know that don't have to be ingested um so yeah definitely um, advocating varying methods and things like perhaps, that but perhaps directing them to lara bryden and uh the yes. really useful <laughs> Yeah, and all sorts of, you know, natural tracking of cycles and all of those things. But, um, yeah, I do tend to steer women away from um, the OCP just because there's so many other negative effects. Right. Um, but, yeah, look, you can manage it. You know, you can give them liver support supplements and you can 
improve the glucuronidation and other liver pathways in as many ways as you can. I mean, ultimately it does add up, you know, so at some stage in their life, that time that they've spent on the OCP always adds up and always, you know, goes with copper toxicity and all the other issues that come with it. Um, so, it's, you know, it's a tricky one. Mm. I think women are still choosing that um, often because it's an easy choice, um, but it does definitely always carry some baggage. Yeah, sure. Okay, so one last quick no it's not one last i could i'll have several but for now uh we know that fat soluble vitamins certainly vitamin d is a real issue in the eastern seaboard at least of australia and it's not just tasmania uh, we have a real issue in queensland southeast queensland so what is the issue with gilberts and fat soluble vitamins do you find they're more at risk of not just vitamin d but let's say vitamin k Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the fat soluble vitamins are getting absorbed through that glucuronidation pathway. Yeah. So A, D, E, K, um, all of those have to be digested and absorbed. So if someone's coming in and they're having loose stools, light colored stools, nausea, you know, all of those sort of fat malabsorption signs, that person, depending on the length of time that they've been having those issues, they're going to have issues with yeah, absorbing their vitamin D and A, so their immune system's not going to be working very well. Um, vitamin K, they probably will have calcium absorption issues and bone issues. And vitamin E, you know, are major antioxidants, so they're going to have a lot of pro-oxidative stress and possibly thyroid issues as well. So that's a really common thing I do see in clinic and definitely try to improve. There, there's so much more that I, I have to look at now. Um, like I've got things going around in my head about what about is, are there any case histories out there floating around about warfarin instability, instability mm. and Gilbert's mm. blah, blah, but that's for yeah. me later. And I guess for our listeners, I would love your interaction, by the way, if you find that you've got any particular interesting cases or interactions or concerns, then please let us know at fxmedicine.com.au or via our social medicine platforms. But uh, Maria, any last thoughts? What about caveats, safety issues? Um, safety issues, I guess, yeah, as we mentioned, you know, just being really careful with any um, medications mm. and you know, being aware of the issues that you have um, with Gilbert's and liver capacity. And I think the main message would be just to really um, minimise toxicity as much as possible in your life. So cutting out the obvious, you know, the cigarettes, the alcohol, the caffeine, um, the, you know, pesticides, eating organic as much as possible. That's a huge area because pesticides do go through glucuronidation pathway. Um, and just, uh, you know, making sure that you're tracking your bloods and looking at what your bilirubin is doing consult with someone who is uh, you know, proficient in understanding this condition and uh, yet using those nutrients like calcium, deglucorate, magnesium, zinc, all of those things that we mentioned to just really manage the condition the best way that you can. You can function really well, um, definitely a testament to that. You know, I, I do try and look after my liver um, and, you know, not have any of those um, negative effects from Gilbert's. It's definitely very manageable. It's just having that um, focus and knowledge on it. 
So I've got to ask one last question before we go, and that is how do you, you know your stuff, you live and breathe this stuff. You can just see it by looking at you. But when you're talking to patients who come from the other side of the tracks, not having a good diet, too high saturated fat, not enough, I'm going to say it, Australian grown, Australian made olive oil, um, yeah. but all of the bad things in life and they don't have a good lifestyle or nor diet. Tell us a little bit about the challenges that you face and how you overcome those. Yeah, so I think, you know, it all comes down to education and just explaining to them what is happening in their liver. And I do spend a lot of time drawing little pictures of buckets and, you know, <laughs> buckets being emptied and leaking buckets and all of those sort of things. Um, it's, yeah, just educating them and understanding, you know, how important this organ is and linking, the, you know, the symptoms that they're having directly to their lifestyle and usually I find you know I can convince people to try things out for at least a month quite easily yep. you know you don't have to tell them that this is a forever change even though some of these things should be mm. uh, you know just get them to start doing these things for a month and that's enough time for them to feel dramatically better and you know improve their digestion improve their um the way that their skin looks the way that they feel their energy all of those things when you know digestion improves everything so um yeah just getting them to commit to small changes for a short amount of time usually is enough for them to then go right okay this is how good i can feel okay let's do this <laughs> yeah so yeah Maria, it, it's actually it's obviously a boon for your patients that you've unfortunately have this condition uh, I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing, but but it's good to, to speak with a clinician that's actually got this personal experience and you've overcome it, you've managed it, and now you can actually teach that, not just uh, for your patients, but indeed for your peers on FX Medicine. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on today discussing Gilbert Syndrome. Thanks so much. Likewise. Thanks so much, Andrew. Great to talk to you as always. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. You can also let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover by contacting us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or by connecting with us on Facebook or Instagram.